Madame Veto avait promis, Madame Veto avait promis de faire égorger tout Paris, de faire égorger tout Paris. Mais son coup a manqué grâce à nos canonniers. Dansons la carmagnole, vive le son, vive le son. Dansons la carmagnole, vive le son des canons. Monsieur Veto avait promis. Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this podcast, I read through American Writers using the Library of America as my source material 100 pages at a time while giving my commentary and my thoughts, my perspective and relevant quotes and some historical context and all that jazz. Um, in this episode, we'll be continuing our study of... Yeah, in this episode, we'll be continuing our study of Thomas Paine by looking at the rights of man. Well, the rights of man was Thomas Paine's defense of the French Revolution. That was his primary goal, and it was answering the critiques of Edmund Burke. So Edmund Burke, a supporter of the American Revolution, criticized the French Revolution for its extremism and radicalism. He thought revolution was a dangerous way to secure rights. Moderation and gradual progress were best. Note that the time between the Magna Carta and the Glorious Revolution was 650 years. So we can say that Edmund Burke was incredibly patient on this question of rights. Uh, furthermore, he preferred rights based on tradition and property, particularly tradition. Uh, he believed that some people were better suited for rights or representative government of some sort because of their tradition or because of their heritage. And he thought some people who lacked that tradition could be rightfully denied rights because they didn't have that traditional foundation in rights. So for him, rights are something that are inherited, as just as political systems are inherited. And this is really the heart of what Thomas Paine wanted to question. The abstract rights advocated in the French Revolution would eventually lead to tyranny or democratic dictatorship, according to Burke. It was an old, he was an old stick in the mud, but let's not entirely reject his argument without reason. There is historical evidence to show that the pursuit of equality can create revolutionary dictatorships, of course, uh, and eventually stronger, more odious states. And conservatives to this day go back to Edmund Burke for the foundation of their thought and their skepticism about radical change and revolutionary change. Now, part one of the rights of man addresses most of Burke's questions about the French Revolution and its attacks on the specifics of the French Revolution, like the attack on the Bastille, for instance, or, or the threat to the monarchy. But also, you know, goes, he also goes to the fundamental questions Burke asks about the origin of rights. To provide a brief outline, Paine begins with a defense of the attack on the Bastille as a requirement in the struggle of the battle between freedom and, and slavery. Quote, Mr. Burke has often spoken a great deal about plots, but he has never once spoken of this plot against the National Assembly and the liberties of the nation. Uh, end quote. In, another, in other words, what he's saying is the attack on the Bastille, if a crime, was a necessary crime to defend the rights of the nation. He then challenges Burke on his entire concept of rights. If, Payne asks, Burke accepts any rights, where did those rights come from? And are they natural? And what acts should be taken in defense of those rights? And Paine exposes how Burke doesn't really have answers to these questions. 
if rights come from nature, then don't they belong to all people? If rights come only from, um, are only belong to certain people, by what right do you exclude them to other people? I mean, on what grounds can you say English people have rights, but French men don't? In the context of this rights discussion, Paine makes a critique of the classical social contract theory. Quote, the fact, therefore, must be that the individuals themselves, each in his own personal and sovereign right, entered into a compact with each other to produce a government. And this is the only mode in which governments have a right to arise, and the only principle on which they have a right to exist. This perhaps is the only definition of government that can be palatable to, for instance, anarchists. This idea that government is actually an avatar of the collection of individual solidarities and personal contacts between free individuals. Not an abstract deal made between the, quote, people and the, quote, state in some legendary past that binds us in perpetuity. Now, this is, as is, common, this is how it's commonly imagined in classical social contract theory. And I think I talked about this a little bit back, maybe with common sense or the crisis letters. Um, but it certainly is, is dealt with here very explicitly in the rights of man. The traditional contract theory of government is that you have a powerful figure and you have society. And society comes to that person in power and says, OK, I will give you the right to rule me. But there's a condition. That condition might be like for Thomas Hobbes, it was protection. For John Locke, it might be the protection of rights. But this kind of leads to this chicken and egg problem. Right? Where did this entity that we're negotiating with come from? And Paine takes a more Rousseauian approach in this by arguing that the social contract is really within and among society itself. It's something that's been worked out by the figures in the society. It's not an external thing. It's created out of society, not external to it. In the second half of part one, Paine begins to describe the French Constitution, providing a narrative of the revolution, and repeats the critique of hereditary monarchy, primogeniture, and aristocracy that he originally presented in Common Sense. In part one ends with the vision of global revolution. Paine saw the French Revolution as a blow to absolute monarchy that could not be shaken off. And he was correct. It would take another century and a world war to get to that, but... Um, in a sense, he was right that the French Revolution would be one of the central events in Western history and the event that would, more than any other, lead to the eventual questioning and fall of monarchies across Europe. So that is the general summary of the first half of Rights of Man. So let's go and take a closer look. First, the main point of disagreement between the two writers, Paine and Burke, is on the origin of rights. So for Burke, rights come from tradition from from heritage quote the method which burke takes to prove that the people of england have no such rights and that such rights do not now exist in the nation either in whole or in a part or anywhere at all is the same marvelous and monstrous kind with which he has already said for his arguments are that the persons or the generations of persons in whom they did exist are dead and with them the right is dead also to prove this, he quotes a declaration made by Parliament about a hundred years ago to William and Mary in these words. The Lord's spiritual and temporal and commons do in the name of the people of war said, most humbly and faithfully submit themselves, their heirs and posterities forever, end quote. He also quotes a clause of another act of Parliament made in the same reign, in terms of which he says, binds us, our heirs and our posterity to them, their heirs for posterity to the end of all time. 
So the problem here is in in Burke's view, if liberties liberties can be taken away by people who are long dead, right? And that people living today are bound by a deal made to William and Mary back in the Glorious Revolution. Uh, this is on the next page. It's 438 of, of my The Library of America versions of the Rights of Man. Uh, to quote Paine, there never did and never will, and there can never exist a parliament or any description of men or any generation of men in any country possessed of the right or the power of binding and controlling posterity to the end of time or for commanding forever how the world should be governed or who shall govern it. And therefore all such clauses, acts, or declarations by which the makers of them attempt to do what they have neither the right nor the power to do nor the power to execute are in themselves null and void. Every age and generation must be free to act of itself in all cases, as the ages and generations must precede it. Preceded it. The vanity and presumption of governing beyond the grave is the most ridiculous and insolent of all tyrannies. Man has no property in man, neither has any generation of property in the generations which are to follow. End quote. So here's our argument against all versions of conservatism. Here's our argument against forcing children to accept the values of their parents or the government of their parents, or you know, the religion, the morality, anything from their parents has, is rightfully overturned by the children. Right? So this is an important radical point that Paine establishes here, and it has many, many applications. Everything from education, something he talks about in some detail in, in Age of Reason, the next book we'll look at in, in a couple episodes. Now, Paine's point here is very clear. No political system should sustain control of the destiny of people for all time. And the only way to ensure this is true is with some form of political democracy, where the consent of the people can be renewed or revisited or reestablished. This, this should get rid of any boring loyalties to one political system, one constitution, one set of rights, one set of laws, or tradition in general. It is for this reason that Paine is able to argue that the goal of revolutions was against the despotic system of government itself and not particularly the king. And we're reminded of his defense of the life of Louis Capet. He did not agree with the uh, decision to execute uh, the former king, Louis XVI. And he did that for various reasons, but one of his biggest ones is that his crimes were the crimes of a king and he was no longer king. And we, she should be addressed as a private person and not as a position. Right. Now, as I talked about in my episodes on the crisis letters, Payne relished the role of the troll. And much of the first part of Rights of Man involves Payne talking about current events in the French Revolution and responding to Burke's attacks on events. And often he puts on his hat as a troll, making fun of Burke, humiliating him, pointing out the ridiculousness of his arguments, on and on. Paine is not primarily interested in defending the revolution for everything it did, right? But um, he does, as much as he can, defend certain things like the attack on the Bastille or certain mass actions. He, uh, he, you know, at the end of the day, he thinks the revolution was uh, a necessary event and was going to necessitate some suffering. But throughout this discussion, this back and forth of this attempts to justify the actions of the revolutionaries, and remember, this is before the terror. This was published before the terror, before the guillotine was lopping off many heads. And, you know, we'd have to look, maybe think about what Paine would have said about that. 
Um, I'm sure he wrote about it. He certainly did write defending uh, the life of the former King Louis the Sixteenth. So that might suggest some of what he had to say about um, the terror. We don't really have it in um, in this collection of essays by Payne. We know, of course, Payne was almost a victim of the terror himself, and maybe it was like a clerical error that saved his life from the guillotine. Anyways, on this issue of violence and disorder of the revolution, Payne has two major responses to this. The first is that for the most part, these sins are matched more than one for one by the evils inflicted by the French monarchists and counter-revolutionaries themselves. Quote, Lay then the axe to the root and teach governments humanity. It is their sanguinary punishments which corrupt mankind. In England, the punishment of certain cases is by hanging, drawing, and quartering. The heart of the sufferer is cut out and held up to the view of the populace. In France, under the former government, the punishments were no less barbarous. Who does not remember the execution of Damien torn to pieces by horses? Um, and just to set aside here, I think this is the execution described in the opening pages of Michel Foucault's Discipline and Punish, if you want to have a gruesome read. Continuing on, the effect of these cruel spectacles exhibited to the populace is to destroy tenderness or excite revenge. And by this base, the false idea of governing men by terror instead of reason, they become precedents. It is over the lowest class of mankind that government by terror is intended to operate, and it is on them that it operates to the worst effects. They have sense enough and feel that they are objects aimed at, and they inflict in the turn the examples of terror that they have instructed to practice. End quote. So, ultimately, the sins of the revolution, to the degree they exist, are sins of the monarchy itself. Whatever evils the revolutionaries have done, they learn from monarchy itself, its cruelties, its tendency to control through punishment, etc. Absolutism is a violation of human nature, Paine adds, which Paine sees as fundamentally good. So after working through his defense of the events of the revolution itself, Paine goes into the core principles of where rights begin. They do not come from tradition. They do not come from tradition, then. Do they come from nature? Now, Paine does think nature provides some rights and that people do have some natural rights, but these are of limited use and really of limited interest. They're not that important. They only apply to someone living in some sort of state of nature, which really doesn't matter for Paine. Paine cares about societies, communities, and governments. So where do the rights that matter in a society come from? The rights that one has as a member of society. That's what really matters here. So here's what Paine has to say about this. This is on page 464. A few words will explain this. Natural rights are those which appertain to man in the right of his existence. Of this kind, there are intellectual rights or rights of the mind, and also those rights of acting as an individual for his own comfort and happiness. Those are which are not injurious to the natural rights of others. Civil rights are those which appertain to man in right of him being a member of society. Every civil right has its foundation, some natural right pre-existing the individual, but to which his individual power is not, in all cases, sufficiently competent. Of these kind are those which relate to security and protection. Okay, so in short, rights come from the community, they come from society, they come from us giving them to one another. Um, and it's a, it's a gift we give to each other and benefit from. He rejects the confusing aspects of social contract theory, the what came first question, the government or the contract. He seems to take from Rousseau the idea that the social contract is really between the members of society um, who get together and form a government. 
not with some strong man that had to be negotiated with a before government even really exists. So what kind of government has the French Revolution created? Around halfway through the first part of the rights of man, we get a near point-by-point -point defense of the French Constitution. He cannot compare it to the English Constitution for two reasons. The first of which is that there's no such constitution for him to compare it to. There's only the aggregate of British traditions. Plus, he says, Burke has failed to do any systematic defense of the English Constitution. Therefore, Paine doesn't really want to waste our time with something that even Burke is not prepared to defend. But we do get a point-by-point -point description and layout of the French um, Constitution. Now, partially, this is news. This is reporting. Uh, Paine talks about in the introduction to this that, you know, he is writing in English to the English people to respond to Burke because the French, writing in French, wouldn't have been capable of really responding quite as well to. So he's standing up for the French system of government to the British people. His audience is not the French. His audience is really the English and the people that were reading Burke at the time. So he's laying out, in a sense, what the French have accomplished in their constitution. Uh, of course, hinting throughout that maybe the British should do the same thing. So we see here in the structure of the rights of man is a back and forth between principles and current events. In this way, he follows the custom laid out in the crisis pamphlets of providing a little bit of propaganda, a little bit of commentary on news, a little bit of proposals and policies and a st always a strict defense of the actions of the revolutionaries. He feels the need to defend the situation of the French revolutionaries while also laying out his philosophical foundations. This is important because for Paine, all rights are dependent on living people. To worry too much about strict philosophy is pointless. These aren't philosophical tracks so much because that's kind of silly. Even if you were to lay out a philosophical foundation for rights, for Paine, that doesn't really matter. What matters is what people create through their communities and societies and what they write down and what they're prepared to defend. Rights, yeah, rights are essentially a fiction. They're a fiction created by us. They're like morality in that way, right? There's no external morality. We're gonna, we'll get to this with the age of reason, of course. It's, morality doesn't come from the gods. It comes from us. So rights are essentially similar. They're akin to moral codes or things that we just agree to do because, you know, it makes for a better society. It makes for a more happy society or whatever. To worry too much about strict philosophy will only lead to the same old problems of devotion to ideas over human needs or the same problem Burke runs into, according to Paine, of tradition over the living, right? To allow some idea offer proffered up thousands of years ago to dominate the people who live today. The dead should never rule the living is Paine's central thesis here. Part one of the rights of man then ends with the discussion of the Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen, which is the core document, of course, coming out of the French Revolution. This is a powerful way to conclude this part of the pamphlet, or the book, um, because for all things considered, the French Revolution has created this document, and it's the most powerful and long-lasting of documents. We still live with it, of course, in new forms. We have, of course, the UN's Declaration of, of the Rights of rights of individuals i forget the full name of it but it's the u.n declaration of human rights i think that's what it's called and this has a genealogy to the french revolution now after this we get a miscellaneous chapter this is explained by Paine to be miscellaneous because the burke had a bunch of miscellaneous ideas that were kind of tossed in there and Paine wanted to address them and he they didn't really fit into his other comments on the french revolution so he wanted to deal with them here 
This allows us to get a more global point of view. He starts to think about the French Revolution as part of a global movement that will affect even the British. Mostly, though, he wants to, direct, to directly assault the idea of hereditary monarchy and, more important, hereditary rights. I don't want to go too much into detail here because it's all done in common sense, but I, there are, there's a nice quote here which I think is worth highlighting. Quote, In whatever light hereditary secession, as growing out of the will and testament of some former generations, presents itself, it is an absurdity. A cannot make a will to take from B the property of B and give it to C. Yet this is the manner in which what is called hereditary secession by law operates. A certain former generation makes a will to take away the rights of the commencing generation and all future ones and convey those rights to a third person who afterward comes forward and tells them in Mr. Burke's language that they have no rights and their rights are already bequeathed to him and that he will govern in contempt of them. From such principles of such ignorance, good Lord, deliver the world. After all, what is this metaphor called a crown or rather what is monarchy? It is a thing or it is a name or is it a fraud? Is it a contrivance of human wisdom or of human craft to obtain money from a nation under species pretenses? Is it a thing necessary to a nation? If it is, in what does this necessity consist? What services does it perform? What is its business and what are its merits? Does the virtue consist of the metaphor or in the man? Does the goldsmith that makes the crown make the virtue also? Does it operate like a fortunus wishing cap or harlequin's wooden sword? Doth it make a man a conjurer? In faith, what is it? It appears to be something going much out of fashion, falling into ridicule and rejected in some countries both as unnecessary and expensive. In America, it's considered an absurdity. And in France, it is so far declined that the goodness of the man and the respect of his personal character are the only things that preserve the appearance of its existence. End quote. So yet another great summary of Paine's arguments on hereditary monarchy. So we come to our conclusion of the first part. And Paine sums up what he thinks is the most important part of this book. That government is a product of our societies and communities and is not an external thing which we much negotiate with through tradition. It is purely an expression of our collective will. It has no inherent rights, as imagined in the British system, where you have the idea of a divided constitution. It is purely our creation. To summary, summarize, quote, the romantic and barbarous distinction of men into kings and subjects, though it may suit the conditions of courtiers, cannot that of citizens, and is exploited by the principle on which governments are now founded. Every citizen is a member of a sovereignty, and as such can acknowledge no personal subject, subjection, and his obedience can only be to the laws. So that's the first part of Thomas Paine's The Rights of Man. I urge you to read it. It's, it still holds up as a great read, and it's got a, um, wonderful lessons on that can be applied to many areas of life, not just, not just government and not just revolution. Um, we'll, we'll take up next time the second part of the rights of the man, of rights of man, which is much more specific, gets much more into policy, and therefore has a lot of interesting things to say to us um, today. Uh, you, you can throw it away as maybe Payne's kind of offerings of possibilities that governments can do, but I think it actually has a lot more to teach us because it's, it's very practical. And even though we might throw out his numbers and his specific recommendations, the core ideas behind these recommendations, I think, often hold up and predict in many ways the welfare state uh, we now live in and uh, in many ways are struggling to, to sustain. So with that, I'm going to, to sign off. Thank you so much for listening. Um, I hope you're enjoying this series on Thomas Paine. 
Um, and we'll see you next time. If you enjoyed this, please uh, like it or subscribe um, on iTunes or on Podbean. And you can send me messages at 100pagescast at gmail.com and I'll, I'll respond as soon as I can. So um, thanks again for listening and I'll see you next time. Mais le coup a manqué, elle a le nez cassé. Dansons la carmagnole, vive le son, vive le son. Dansons la carmagnole, vive le son du canon. Son mari se croyant vainqueur, son mari se croyant vainqueur.